Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Guardian reports U.S. economy shrinks in second quarter, signaling unofficial start of recession. The bad news will be a major blow for the Biden administration as it prepares for a tough midterm election season. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, welcome back. My pleasure. So it's reported that the U.S. economy shrank again in the last three months, unofficially signaling the start of a recession. The Commerce Department announced this today that gross domestic product, a broad measure of price of the price of goods and services, decreased at an annual rate of point. 9% in the second quarter after falling at an annual rate of 1.6 in the first three months. Uh, Jack, I took a lot of econ courses over my years. I spent a lot of time listening to you and Dr. Taheed. I understand in economics, a recession is a business cycle contraction where there is a general decline in economic activity for two consecutive quarters. Dr. Jack Rasmus, are we now in recession? Uh, well, yes, we are in recession. I was predicting it late last year. We would be. Uh, but you see, there's two different ways of estimating a recession. And, uh, you know, the policymakers cherry pick whichever one suits them, like they do with other statistics. Uh, and, uh, you know, the one that's generally uh, accepted by the public is uh, two consecutive quarters of GDP contraction. Right. And that's what's called a technical recession now. Uh, and of course, uh, the Biden administration and uh, other policymakers uh, and Democrats are saying, uh, well, that doesn't matter. That's not the real definition of recession. The second definition of recession is whatever these elite uh, selected uh, mainstream economists who belong to this quasi-government organization called the National Bureau of Economic Research, NBER, say is a recession after the fact. They never say, while well, you're in it, they'll wait until it's over three to six months, and then they'll say, oh, it occurred. You know, mm -hmm. this is the time frame. And the NBER folks, uh, what they look at is not just GDP, but they look at employment levels and imports and exports, a whole bunch of economic indicators. But, you know, they have no real quantitative uh, uh, formula for saying uh, that, oh, now it's a recession or now it's ended. Um, it's very subjective, very eclectic. Uh, and, um, you know, whatever they, they say as a group, uh, then that's supposed to be recession. Uh, I have a little problem with that because there's no real quantitative, as I said, um, formula for saying, okay, when we have so much un unemployment, so much industrial production uh, contraction, uh, now it's a recession, you see. So it's very subjective on their part. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, they ignore the fact that it may be uh, two consecutive uh, quarters of contraction. A good example is what happened in, in the first half of 2020, 
you know, when we had this deep contraction in the economy, first quarter because of COVID coming, second quarter, COVID was here, deep contraction over 10%. But the NBER economist said, oh, it was just a short two-month recession, April and May. And then in June, it was all over. You see, because there's another oxymoron principle here in defining recessions that the U.S. uses, and that is you're only in a recession if GDP and these other indicators continue to fall. Once they stop falling, oh, you're out of in a recession. recession. <laughs> yeah, you may have contracted 15% like we did in the first half of 2020, but because we didn't contract 16 another percent in June of 2020, it's over. I mean, the, the definition should be the recession is over when you've recovered what you lost during the contraction. Uh, but they don't do that in the U.S., you see. So it looks like recessions are all very short. Uh, another problem with the recession definitions in the U.S. is that the U.S. Uh, repeatedly redefines what goes into GDP to make it look like it's not contracting as much as it, it might be. The last time this happened was in 2013 when the U.S. government uh, and the agencies uh, redefined some of the elements that go into GDP. They add intellectual property, uh, you know, uh, logos and uh, uh, trademarks, you know, and uh, things like that. Uh, intellectual property, what is the value of that? Well, no one knows what the hell that is. You know, it, Nike can say whatever it wants. It can say, oh, you know, the value of our logo went up $200 billion. Okay, we're going to add that to GDP. <laughs> and then we had R&D, research and development expenditures, which before 2013 were expenditures, not something that went into GDP. Well, they started counting that as well. In 2013, they added $500 billion to GDP retroactively and going forward. That, by the way, was how they avoided a double-dip recession in the winter of 2013. They changed the definition. So even this technical uh, two consecutive quarters, you know, the, the, there's a lot of um, fudging of, of definitions and fudging of numbers and so forth that go, go around, um, you know, so that they can make it look a little better, a little worse. And, and the government does that with a lot of uh, data. Uh, for example, you know, uh, Real GDP, which is this number we we're talking about, uh, is um, adjusted for inflation. So if your inflation is lowballed, you're going to have a bigger real GDP. I think it's lowballed by a couple percent. So you know, really, the point nine zero point nine contraction. If you had a more accurate representation of inflation, it would be worse than point zero nine. It would be you know minus 1.5 or something or minus 2 or something like that. So the government plays around with this stuff. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have any other real indicator uh, to tell us. You know, that's that's the, the worst of the best indicators, uh, GDP. Um, but the big thing is, uh, you know, the government and uh, NBR economists, uh, they say, uh, oh, you know, GDP – uh, we're not going to look at just GDP. We're going to look at employment, which brings us to why their argument is we're not in a recession. And and uh, Fed Chairman Powell echoed this yesterday. He said, "Well, yeah, okay. You know, we may have uh, 
GDP contraction, but that's not a recession because employment is doing so well. How can we have a, a recession when we're adding jobs, you know, and the job turnover number is low and so on? Uh, well, jobs are a six-month lagging indicator. Now, so they may not be real bad now, but they're going to be bad by the end of the year. Uh, so, you know, okay, so we'll ignore the fact that it's a lagging indicator and we'll say uh, <laughs> employment is so good, therefore we're not in a, in a recession. And they point to a few other things. But, you know, I, as, as a last note here, if you look at the, the, the GDP preliminary report, by the way, it's just preliminary, uh, we'll get um, next month a, uh, a, a second estimation. And that's you usually some changes in in the preliminary advanced uh, report we got today, uh, and then there's a final third one a couple months uh, later. That doesn't change much. It's the second one that changes. But if you look at uh, this preliminary ad, uh, ad, advanced report today, contained within it are some very key sectors which are worse in the second quarter than they were in the first. Even though you know the total contraction was less in the second quarter than it was in the first, within uh, that 0 0.9 are some very significant falling faster than in the first quarter. Residential housing, right? Non-residential construction, in other words, property, uh, commercial property, uh, you know, uh, office buildings, malls, and so forth, that's falling faster. Uh, the good sector is falling faster, and those manufactured goods uh, state and local government spending is falling fact faster. Inventories are falling fa faster. Uh, it's offset uh, by faster increases uh, or not as – well, faster increases to make it simple uh, in uh, uh, consumption spending on what? On travel, right? And uh, on hotels, uh, food out outside, health care and so forth. So – People were spending a little bit more in the second quarter in these areas, and that offset the faster contraction in government and business spending, uh, which is more important in the longer run, I think. Here. And, and it's also important to realize that when they're spending on food, inflation hits the price of food. When they're spending on travel, inflation raises the price of travel. So a lot of the things that are contributing to, to the offset are offset because of inflation. Well, no, it's adjusted for inflation. Oh, adjusted for, okay, said, I'm sorry, okay. Yeah, but the inflation is not uh, really fully reflected, is my point, Okay, you see. Um, and and these goods, different things that people buy, you know, food and healthcare and hotels and so forth, travel, um, they are given certain weights. In other words, because we spend more of our income on food and lodging than we do on buying PCs, maybe, uh, it's given more weight in the calculation of the price index. But that's an, a weighting based on uh, the whole economy and all occupation groups. And those weights are underestimated for uh, the middle class and below. So really, inflation is hitting the middle class even more, but it's not reflected mm. uh, in, in this price index, the inflation index, uh, which, by the way, uh, you know, the second quarter here, inflation price index in this GDP report uh, was actually higher than the first quarter. Yeah, the index for it's called the GDP deflator price index was actually higher in the second quarter, 
8% increase as opposed to 8% increase. In other words, where's all this hoopla about gasoline prices coming down? Well, they're not. it's not evident in the GDP numbers, that's for sure. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. I always join you. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The U.S. offers prisoner swap to Russia. Washington has reportedly suggested trading a Russian arms dealer for a sports star and a convicted spy. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. So we're told that uh, Secretary of State Blinken said yesterday that the U.S. has made a substantial offer to Russia to secure the release of basketball player Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, who has been jailed for espionage. This, according to CNN, the trade would involve Russian arms dealer Victor Bout and two Americans. Uh, what are you hearing about this? Are you hearing anything about this, Mark Schloboda? Yeah, um, I mean, kind of what is missing is uh, in the details is that um, the U.S. evidently made this offer to Russia several weeks ago already. Um, and Russia, the only public statement about it thus far, would uh, it has been that they believe that the interests of both sides – uh, should be considered, which seems to indicate that they're not exactly uh, happy with the deal. Um, so um, at, at least thus far, uh, as I understand it, negotiations are ongoing. Um, it is, of course, rather interesting um, what these uh, three individuals um, uh, have been arrested for uh, in each other's uh, countries. Um, the uh, Grider, the um, uh, U.S. athlete, was caught passing through um, uh, Russian customs with uh, in the possession of drugs, uh, which is druggy, uh, cannabis oil, as far as I understand. Um, and uh, Paul Whelan was 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 caught in the act of espionage. Uh, Victor Bout was. Um, uh, actually arrested in Thailand and extradited to the U.S. at the U.S. request. Um, he was charged uh, with providing arms uh, to a designated terrorist organization, which would be FARC, uh, the revolutionary movement in Colombia. This is all rather amusing, of course, because the U.S. is the biggest supplier of arms in the world. 
Um, and a, uh, a former gorilla has just been elected president of Colombia. Uh, so uh, if Victor Bout gains his freedom out of this, it, it must be doubly of satisfaction for him to know that um, that FARC won in the end and got elected anyway. Uh, so um, I, I find that uh, to be particularly ironic. Uh, but we'll, we will have to see how this goes. Right now, negotiations are ongoing. And at the very least, Russia hasn't jumped at the opportunity, although we have seen previous such exchanges. Um, uh, you know, it, just in the last year, we saw an exchange um, that saw uh, Trevor Reed, um, a Marine who was involved in a drunken uh, fight with Russian police officers while uh, uh, in Russia on a tourist visa uh, returned uh, in exchange for a Russian held in U.S. captivity. So there's certainly precedent for such, but uh, we'll have to see going forward. Let me say one thing on the Britain, Brittany Griner, and I'm, I've said all along, you know, weed's legal in a lot of states, and I hope the best. I hope, certainly hope. I think she made what we would call a mistake of youthful transgression. A young person, they had some, took some weed with her in the wrong country. She got in trouble. It was a stupid move, and I hope. And if I wouldn't do it, but if I was that young, I might do something that stupid. I don't know. I hope she gets home. But here's one thing I, I'm going to say about that 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 isn't discussed. I don't know how much better she'd be off at home. Let me read something to you real quick, Mark. High court upholds life sentence for a Mississippi, Mississippi man convicted of marijuana possession. A man sentenced to life in prison on a marijuana possession charge has lost his appeal to the state's highest court. Thursday, the Mississippi Supreme Court ruled that Alan Russell's life sentence was not a violation of the Eighth Amendment and was in line with state statute. Russell was given life without parole in 2019 after he was found guilty of being in possession of 43.71 grams. The guy was caught with an ounce and a half of weed, black guy in Mississippi, and they gave him life imprisonment. All I'm saying is this. For those who are screaming, hey, she's a political prisoner, I don't feel like that. She made an error, and I hope she gets off and they find a way to get her home. But let's face it, if she's a political prisoner, then what's this poor schmuck that got life without parole? A black man in Mississippi. A black man in Mississippi. There's a whole, That's what he got convicted of being. Being a black, black man, man in Mississippi, Mississippi on a sunny day. <laughs> but the bottom line well, is a there's a whole day. lot of black folks. A, yeah, a don't black man it. in Mississippi. Exactly. There's a whole lot yeah, of black yeah, more folks. more importantly, a black man in Mississippi who— <laughs> yeah. And my point, Mark, I'll throw it back to you is my point is there's a whole lot of black folks in the United States right now in prison for small amounts of weeds as other people are getting rich off of weed. Are they political prisoners also? Mark Laboda. Well, I, I, I think the, the salient point there is that the uh, black individual in Mississippi is not a U.S. Olympic athlete <laughs> and that the law, is, as we all know, is not equally applied to all people. Um, let's face it. Russia threw – uh, you know, the book at her in the worst way, uh, basically in return for the U.S. witch hunt of Russian Olympic athletes, uh, only to find a U.S. Olympic athlete with drugs in her possession walk right into their lap. They took advantage of the opportunity as as a bit of revenge. I don't think there's any question about that. 
Uh, I, I think she probably deserves to get home too, but I also believe that Victor Belt deserves to be home um, and that, uh, you know, it's laughable for the U.S. of all countries in the world uh, to arrest him for, for uh, arms transfers. Axios reports Blinken to speak to Russia's Lavrov for first time since Ukraine invasion. Secretary of State Blinken said yesterday that he plans to speak with Lavrov, quote, in the coming days, end quote, to raise several issues, including Brittany Griner and other Americans in Russia, as well as re, uh, recent, the recent deal to resume Ukrainian grain exports. Mark, I'm shocked but not surprised that Blinken, this is the first time since the Ukraine, uh, the Russia's U- intervention in Ukraine, that that Blinken is speaking to Lavrov. One would have thought since Joe Biden told us during the campaign that he was going to lead with diplomacy, that Blinken would be on the phone with Lavrov every day. And on the days that he's not on the phone, that he would be texting him. And when he's not texting him, he would be on Instagram. Yeah, um, I I think it would be shocking to anyone who believes that the U.S. would seek seek to see a peaceful resolution of the conflict in Ukraine. But I I think it's been patently obvious uh, from Blinken's not even speaking to Lavrov since February 24th that that is not the U.S. intention. That, that they have not wanted peace on any terms, uh, but as they they you know have referred to it as a uh, weakening and humiliation of Russia, something that there is no indication that they can expect uh, to happen. Um, I think it is generally a good thing that the uh, Russian foreign minister and the U.S. Secretary of State will at last meet, but. When Blinken has often been a bigger warmonger than the generals in the Pentagon, my hopes for this upcoming meeting will be uh, kept on, on, shall we say, on the lowered stage of expectations. Well, and, you know, Tony Blinken has uh, pretty much made it clear that he is the worst kind of uh, anti-Russian hawk. So I I don't think we'll expect uh, we can expect anything more than uh, bluster from him. Uh, The U.S.-Ukrainian defense chiefs now are discussing more deliveries of the HIMARS system. This is the latest Wunderwaffen, wonder weapon. HIMARS is going to, you know, they put some made some holes in some bridges. Now the Poles say they want 100 of them. HIMARS. Is this going to turn the tide for the Ukrainians? Mark Sloboda. Yeah. So, I mean, the U.S. has provided uh, the Kiev regime with eight HIMARS, which are a multiple launch rocket system. Uh, Twelve actually total. Eight of them are were supposedly delivered for use on the battlefield. The Russian Ministry of Defense says they've already hunted down and destroyed four of them. It's not a bad system as far as a multiple launch rocket system goes. Um, it is better than several of Russia's older models, uh, like the Grad and the Smerch. On the other hand, it is actually inferior to the Russian system, the, the Tornado, which has an equivalent accuracy at a longer range and a bigger rocket payload uh, able to fire in salvos. Um, but – The Kiev regime has already had over 700 multiple launch rocket systems of their own 
destroyed in the last few months of this war. Whether they're getting eight or 12 or 20 or 30 multiple launch rocket systems, it's not going to change the war. They're of really only very light, you know, uh, pinprick tactical use on their own. They're designed to be, they're incredibly vulnerable system, right? They're basically a rocket launcher attack attached to a truck. Uh, they have no defenses. We're talking about Ukraine where Russia has air dominance over the entire country and air superiority over the any areas uh, of the battlefield of where the actual conflict is taking place. They're designed to be used in a combined arms maneuvers with infantry and tanks and air cover and air defenses all working together. Kiev doesn't have any of that. Right. They, they, they had an army that was armed and trained by NATO. It's already been destroyed. Now they're trying to create a second one in the midst of a conflict with systems that their people are not trained on. It will take months to train each back of batch of people up. And every time one of these systems is hit, you're almost assuredly losing all of those trained crew. They uh, they have to completely rely on U.S. supplies for the rockets to be fired for them, which can also be a separate target being hit. Russia is trying to interdict them as they cross the country into the areas of the battlefield. Um, and they have no logistics and supply for the maintenance, the repairs. They, you know, they would all have to immediately be shipped out of the country. The U.S. in total has some four some some not even 400 some 360 um high mars of their own in service with the army if the us would transfer every single one of their systems which they're almost certainly not going to do to the kiev regime it would not win this conflict for them that 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 is a fact what we have going on here is a symbolic value and the u.s military industrial complex presenting its use to try to generate sales which they just have to poland congratulations it's a money laundering scheme yes well i mean it's a arms sale promotion <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what I mean, no, what I mean by that is it's it's the funneling of ta of American tax dollars back to the arms manufacturers, and they're using this Ukraine uh, issue as the as the hook. Risk of nuclear that war, is, you know, you been know a what? Big part of it all along. Okay, thank you. You're absolutely right. Yeah, uh, Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and as always, we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Uh, Presidents Biden and Xi hold talks on Taiwan and trade dispute. Joe Biden and Chinese and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping spoke by phone for well over two hours today uh, over tensions over Taiwan, a festering trade dispute, and their bid to keep the superpower rivalry in check. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's a writer. She's the president of of the Rising Tide Foundation in Montreal, Canada, Cynthia Chung. Cynthia, welcome to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. So according to the South China Morning Post, China has repeatedly stated to the U.S. its solemn position that it firmly opposes Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Uh, Zhao uh, Lijian repeated the warning over to, uh, to regarding to today's call, if the U.S. insists on going its own way, the Chinese military will never sit idly by and will take strong measures to thwart any attempt by external forces to interfere and support Taiwan independence. And it's and this article says that Joe Biden is expected to restate the U.S. approach to the one China policy during the call in the face of China's statements. How can Joe Biden think anyone is going to believe that the United States is still adhering to the one China policy when Nancy Pelosi, the second in line to be the president of the United States, is still talking about going to Taiwan? Um, I think that there is we've reached a point in American foreign policy where there is such a level of delusion as to what is even the strength of the United States at this point um, in the, the, the global sphere um, that there there is a, a level of recklessness that is in complete denial of the reality of the situation. And, um, you know, Ukraine already is, is something that everyone should be thinking about. You know, Caitlin Johnstone made the point, There's, uh, it's one thing to not learn from history, it's another to not learn from the last five months. And um, there is a, a level of just denial of reality at this point, which Americans should be very concerned because there's going to be some serious consequences and, you know, I think the United States has had its own kind of island philosophy for too long that the decisions that they make in other parts of the world are not going to affect them in a direct manner. But we're reaching a point where Russia and China um, are much stronger than they were in the past. And they're also very responsible with that power. And I think that that is being taken advantage of. You know, the fact that Mike Pompeo uh, tweeted on the 24th, Nancy, I'll go with you. I'm banned in China, but not freedom-loving Taiwan. See you there. The kind of comments that Bolton, too, is uh, saying... Uh, let Pelosi go to Taiwan. It'll tell us a great deal about who actually controls American uh, policy, Washington or Beijing. You know, the fact of whether we can send American officials to a part that is officially recognized, according to even the United States, as part of China, is just beyond stupid at this point. Um, And I think that the American people have to really uh, wake up and, and not 
be supporting these kinds of reckless maneuvers. Biden's also visit to Saudi Arabia was like a complete embarrassment. Nobody is taking the United States serious at this point, and they need to really watch themselves because um, there is a red line. That's the reality. And, you know, reality is going to come to uh, meet Americans in a direct manner if, you know, this sort of recklessness continues. I also think what this this demonstrates something, it should demonstrate something to the American people, and that there, there's two things. Number one, the fact that Nancy says this and the Republicans are jumping up and down clapping, that all these Republicans are like, yeah, we're on board with that. John Bolton and uh, and uh, and Pompeo, yeah, we're down with that. It should show that the two parties have become one, have really become totally and completely aligned and that any thoughts that we have two separate parties in the United States is an illusion. In fact, let me, if I could add to that quickly, Steve Scalise said last night, oh, now Nancy Pelosi has to go to Taiwan because to back down now would show our allies that the United States is weak. It's a it's a complete circus. I mean, this whole thing, too, of like Biden saying he's not really for Pelosi going and, and all this back and forth when Biden just a few months ago was saying that he was willing to uh, intervene if, if China were to take any uh, decision in, in how they handle uh, Taiwan, the situation in Taiwan in a way that uh, the United States found unfavorable. And the other thing that, you know, listeners need to uh, remember is that the Maidan revolution in 2014, which had the National Endowment for democracy, you know, the CIA branch of color revolutions all over it. Um, that very same year, you had the Hong Kong Revolution, also organized by the NED, by uh, called the Umbrella Revolution, and the Sunflower Movement, also in 2014 for Taiwan through the NED. So this isn't, these are not um, just organic situations, you know, color revolutions is that there is something that it exists already as a, a disagreement, but it is flared up like on steroids a thousand times, you know, greater than it needs to be. And the reality in the, in Taiwan is that the older generation is actually not for these things. It's mostly the younger generation who have gone through massive propaganda through the NED in their education system at this point in Taiwan. So this level of like uh, upset over over China, who they completely depend on for their economic development, by the way, is is not actually in favor of the Taiwanese people. And as we see what happened in Ukraine, the United States is uh, getting Taiwan, even Japan is being pressured, South Korea. Are these people going to die for American hegemony? People need to wake up. Talk a little bit about the the personalities involved, specifically Nancy Pelosi. Uh, there are a lot of places in the world that Nancy Pelosi can go and not ruffle any feathers. But China, the relationship between Nancy Pelosi and China, as I understand it, uh, a number of years ago, uh, she went uh, she went to China and uh, mysteriously appeared at Tiananmen Square and unfurled a banner. And and really since then, uh, she she's been kind of persona non grata as it, as it relates to China. Pelosi is kind of like the Victoria Newland of you know the the China Taiwan situation. I wouldn't be surprised if she tries to hand out cookies in Taiwan. <laughs> but um, you know there there is a lot of um, 
it's it's true. A lot of the Chinese who moved to the United States, they've they're very critical of um, you know what happened under Mao and and so forth. But they need to understand that. China um, today is is very different from that time, and they're doing a lot of good things. But I know that it's really hard to see that because China has taken an approach where their internal affairs are their business, and they're not going to try to explain themselves to anybody else. And they've had this kind of approach in their foreign policy for centuries. China has always been like this. But people need to understand, look at the actions of China and what they're doing uh, in other countries as well. It's a focus of development and infrastructure. Um, most of the countries, I mean, every country pretty much at this point in Asia relies on China's um, trade, which is a good thing. They're building their economies. All that the United States has done is had uh, war, economic warfare or direct warfare on these countries. And uh, the uh, United States has carried out a the continuation of the British foreign policy when a lot of these countries used to be colonies. You know, we have like 56,000 American troops approximately in uh, Okinawa, Japan. J Japanese people are, have shown that they're not happy about this, but they don't get to decide these things. The other thing now that we're hearing, you know, we're hearing this um, uh, this weird propaganda where we hear one day Nancy Pelosi says she's going and then Joe Biden says, well, I don't know what's going on. I didn't tell her to go. The military says she doesn't want to go. Now the military says they're preparing a plan to defend her. They're going to send some LMTs and what I call LMTs are large missile targets to the Taiwan Strait so that the it's almost like they're sacrificing the people on these ships that they're saying we'll send these speed bump ships over and then the Chinese will blow them all to bloody heck. All those people will be dead. That's a given. And then we'll move forward and we'll send your kids over to die even more. It is the, one of the most reckless political moves, not one of the most reckless political move that I have seen in my lifetime and in a lot of lifetimes. Cynthia. It's so uh, unprofessional. I mean, it's it's beyond. It's criminal. It's, crim it's criminally negligent, not just for the American people, but for but for the entire world that like this is, you know, a situation now where the United States, uh, certain members that are in control of foreign policy are absolutely insane. And, uh, you know, the Rand report, they were trying to get one of the five uh, treaty members, uh, Australia, Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, Thailand, um, uh, to hold like one of their uh, offensive missiles. And none of those countries agreed to do it because they understand that China is actually not the one at risk, but these countries have been constantly threatened with all types of, um, you know, threats, including economic threats, um, assassinations and all, uh, all this. If they don't, uh, you know, go along with American foreign policy. And uh, it's gotten to a point where uh, China is most certainly not going to uh, just allow itself to be walked all over the United States. And why would they? You know, the this uh, approach by British foreign policy continued by the United States has always wanted to balkanize China, which they clearly are trying to do with breaking off Hong Kong, breaking off Taiwan. It doesn't benefit anyone in Asia. It only benefits a certain small elite, not even the American people, not even the Western European people. Nobody benefits from this except a small uh, elite. Um, global elite that wants a one world government. Uh, and, you know, people have to really realize that China is not the enemy. Russia is not the enemy.
Following on Garland's point, I heard last night on one of the cable news channels that Pelosi was now considering not going to Taiwan. I tried to find today some evidence of that. I haven't seen it reported anywhere, but I did hear that very stated very clearly. Uh, to, to just to add fuel to the very inconsistent messaging here, the military says it's a bad idea. Joe Biden says he doesn't know anything about the trip. Uh, Steve Scalise is saying, now you got to go. And now we hear, well, she might not go. But risk of nuclear war from stonewalling Russia and China, the UK National Security Advisor, Stephen Lovegrove, noted that, you know, this is grave for both the higher level of confidence that we should not miscalculate our way into nuclear war. So it's interesting that now, and even in terms of some American allies, or at least some associated with American allies, are stating the obvious, this is a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, like, this isn't even for uh, uh, any kind of specific Taiwan cause, you know, like Pelosi is saying, I'm just going to Taiwan because I want to show my support as if like we're all teenagers in high school or something like there's not an actual uh, mission reason, specific reason. Yeah, for her to go to Taiwan. And it's actually putting the Taiwanese people in jeopardy. Um, and I'm sure that uh, what's not ever being reported is that a lot of Taiwanese people feel this way. There is even talk right now that South Korea is starting to feel like they need to back uh, away from this situation as well, because it's reached a situation where um, there is no diplomacy, there is no uh, reasoning with this. And we're going to now just like play Russian roulette, like this is where we're at <laughs> in like the grand strategies. We're all going to take turns playing Russian roulette. Uh, no one's going to go along with this. You know, the Amer the American people running American policy can play Russian roulette by themselves. As we wrap this up, just your overall sense, being someone who studies this and is has much greater insight to the particulars than I do. The Chinese government has been very clear. We're going to take action. There are some who say they'll shoot her plane down if it violates the airspace once China establishes a no-fly a no zone. There are others who say, no, China really doesn't want to push that button. Just your sense. There are those who say that she won't come back, <laughs> that if she goes, she's not coming back. Your thoughts? I I don't I don't want to speak for what China is is going to do but let's put it this way that when the red line was crossed for Russia nobody thought Russia was going to react the way they did but mm -hmm. they had a discussion with China most certainly before they did it and it most certainly China is having a discussion with Russia over what their strategy is going to be and it's going to be I I trust that they're going to be as responsible as they can but the situation is is reckless that there, it might come to a military confrontation. Especially if, as they are projecting, that she's going to go on a military plane. That, may, if, that, yes. that makes it, e that's an even bigger signal. Cynthia Chung, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Venezuelan analysis reports Maduro alerts army of the new terrorist threats from Colombia. The Venezuelan mandatory urged the National Bolivarian Armed Forces to defend the country's peace and transition to economic recovery. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a political analyst and editor at Venezuelan Analysis, Ricardo Vaz. As always, Ricardo, welcome back. And as always, thanks for having me. So President Maduro warned about, quote, last minute terrorist threats, end quote, from the outgoing Duque government in Colombia during a ceremony to designate a new military command on Tuesday. He called the Bolivarian National Armed Forces to remain vigilant in the face of new violent plots allegedly being prepared in the neighboring country. Give us some some further insight into this. How big of a concern or not, not necessarily a concern how real of a threat is this, Ricardo Vaz? I would call it a, a moderate threat. So this has been kind of a recurring message, not just from Maduro, but from other high-ranking officials that there is a threat, there are plots being hatched in Colombia, and it's kind of a, a last-ditch moment for Duque because the new president, Gustavo Petro, is taking office on August 7th, if I'm not mistaken. And if you remember, Duque has been one of the most active collaborators of the U.S. empire in the regime change efforts against Venezuela. So in recent weeks, there have been some uh, either accidents or sabotage attacks against some infrastructure. There was an uh, an explosion in a a gas pipeline, also an electrical alleged sabotage at the country's biggest refinery. I mean, there's also, I don't want to sound too too conspiranoid, there's also a suspicion that sometimes Uh, Local officials might blame sabotage instead of taking responsibility. But on the other hand, we only need to look at the recent past to look at the Colombian involvement, for example, in the assassination attempt against Maduro in August 2018 with explosive-laden drones. There was the quote-unquote humanitarian aid invasion in February 2019. There was the mercenary invasion in May 2020, Operation Gideon. So it's not to say that Colombia was actively involved in all of them, but it was surely aware and complicit. So in that sense, uh, it's it's not unreasonable for Maduro to say that uh, the armed forces should be on high alert for any kind of last minute shenanigans. And let's not forget um, the um, assassination of uh, President Moise in Haiti. Those people were Colombians and they were that was out of Colombia, too. So there seems to be a lot of uh, b- bad things coming out of Colombia. Now, when does the new president take uh, come into power in Colombia? And does it seem like like the U.S. empire and the CIA, et cetera, are like trying to get their last gasp before the new, um, uh, uh, the new um, uh, people come to power. Yeah, so Duque has about 10 days left in office. It's not clear whether anything is imminent, but it's better to be safe than sorry. And the US, U.S. officials have kind of been meeting with Petro to see if they can make sure that he doesn't threaten their interests too much. But Petro, on the other hand, was very vocal from from the moment when he won the election, saying that he's going to reestablish ties with Venezuela to reopen the border, which is going to be very important for both countries. And of course, he doesn't even know who this fellow Juan Guaido is. So 
uh, we're all uh, looking forward to closing the chapter on, on Uribismo, which began with Uribe, and, and Duque is just kind of a faded photocopy of, of Uribe, and hopefully a, a new a new era where the relations are, are a bit better. Of course, as you were saying, with the assassination of Moise in, in Haiti, that's kind of the second biggest export from Colombia right now. I mean, the first one is cocaine and the second one is paramilitaries. There are Colombian paramilitaries all over the world because they are uh, US funded, US trained, and they have a, a, a surplus of, of these people and they just export violence everywhere. And, and here in Venezuela, actually the first sign that Colombia was going to be a hostile neighbor was when a few dozen Colombian paramilitaries were caught uh, here in Caracas, just outside the capital, uh, in the middle of a plan to assassinate Chavez. That was in 2004. President Maduro says, Ivan Duque is leaving, saying goodbye forever and going to the dustbin of history, but he continues activating plans. How concerned are Venezuelans that even though Duque is, as the president says, on his way to the dustbin of history, that he's going to sit in that dustbin and kick up dust and and try his best uh, to to foment in, uh, activities, you know that that basically he's going he's going away, but he's not saying goodbye. Yeah, I get what you're saying. In that sense, I would kind of downplay Duque. I don't think he's very much a relevant actor. Uribe is the one that is, is worrisome and also uh, powerful forces within the Colombian military because that's the, the sector that's closer to the United States and a, a strong military that requires funding all the time needs an enemy and needs hostility. So they might be the ones who are more interested in keeping relations tense, perhaps provoking some kind of unrest at the border that would, would put both countries on high alert because they, they they have a lot to lose if Colombia actually turns away from being this kind of uh, South American Israel and turns towards a real uh, Latin American integration, which would be good for the Colombian people and for everybody else. Uh, Pedro Castillo. Now, Al Jazeera has his, that, uh, he, you know, one year since his improbable victory, Pedro Castillo is mired in corruption allegations and congressional deadlock. Now, when I see congressional corruption allegations, I always suspect that, you know, the U.S. empire is always alleging corruption. But the other thing is congressional de- uh, deadlock. I do know that there were, again, there were people who were had um, connections to the U.S. empire in the Congress that intended to put the fritz on some of his policies. Your thoughts on Pedro Castillo, what's happening there in Peru? Yeah, I, re- I remember that we talked about Castillo when he was elected, and there were some suggestions that he was similar to Chavez. And I was kind of hesitant to to make the comparison, although in, in my view, it kind of made sense in the way that he arrived as kind of an unfinished product. It wasn't very clear which way he was going to go. But uh, unlike what, what this Al Jazeera article says, I think it's very biased. It kind of suggests that Castillo was just a, a kind of alternative to a despised political class. And that's not entirely true. I mean, he, he a trade union leader. He really represented at the time of the election this kind of forgotten uh, Peru, which had always been sidelined in favor of these elites uh, in the capital. I mean, colonial elites going back 200 years and then the, the elites that replaced them. And, and Castillo came came to power, as you were saying, facing this uh, uh, very difficult Congress, which in which he didn't have a majority. And basically, the the comparison with, with Chavez was whether he was going to fight or whether he was going to fold. And 
up to now, it seems like he has folded time and again. He has uh, succumbed to pressure and replaced ministers. And he has, as you were saying as well, given up on what were his main uh, campaign promises. One was a, a, a constituent assembly to redraft the constitution. And the other one was renegotiating, uh, I mean, with a purpose, renegotiating the, the agreements with the multinational corporations, the, the mining and energy corporations. And he kind of walked back on both of those. And in, the, in, the, in, in this process, he has lost the support, not just of his party, which wasn't the big one, but also of the people who believe that he was actually going to usher in a new era in, in Peru, because it has been for years mired in these corruption scandals. Of course, there's lots of U.S. influence going around, and they just go from one president who resigns to the next. And there was hope that Castillo would actually, you know, stop this this nonsense and actually bring about some meaningful change. But I mean, at least until now, he hasn't done so. How seriously do you take the charges of corruption? Or is this just the kind of normal chapter of the playbook that those that are backed, those interests that are backed by the United States tend to use? Or are, are there serious, uh, is there real evidence that there's corruption in his administration? Uh, I mean, I, I will I will say that I'm not overly familiar with Peruvian politics, but this is a familiar playbook. You know, you have this Congress which has a majority and wants to stop him at every point, and this is this is the kind of investigation that Congress can open. And so these allegations, there's also a very hostile media environment. So it's just a way to to make life more difficult and ensure that the government is not going to introduce any kind of meaningful change that would threaten the, the interests of these elites. Which isn't to say that there aren't, I mean, Castillo has uh, made alliances with very unsavory characters, so it isn't to say that corruption is totally out of the window, but at this point it's a playbook, as you were saying. President uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, there is considerable concern that he's going to try some uh, some kind of um, unsavory shenanigans and try to upend uh, democracy in uh, Brazil. Your thoughts on what's going on there? And do you think they, those are le- legitimate concerns that people have? Yeah, I think this is something to be concerned about. Bolsonaro has said uh, many times that uh, he, he, he has cast doubt on the electoral system. He has wanted to to go back to to paper ballots and the the difference here is that he has the support of the military and you you all, you've also had these high-ranking generals some of them are on his ticket saying that you know their goal is to preserve brazil from the threat of communism you know whatever whatever that's supposed to mean so the the article there was an article on common dreams which quoted bernie sanders saying that bolsonaro might try something similar to trump and i think that's fairly a fairly reasonable expectation i wouldn't expect the army to stage a coup because i think they they have a a longer game perspective but it's possible that some smaller faction and also bolsonaro has a small support but a very fervent support and if it gets to a point where he has nothing to lose he might very well try it because you know why not however i wouldn't um, under the circumstances expect the united states to back it to back any kind of any any kind of effort like this because it would just make uh, make things more difficult it would make them look bad so i think at this point the strategy that's being employed much like petro in colombia is trying to minimize lula and the threat that he can bring uh, on one hand to the to the brazilian elites and on the other hand 
to to U.S. interests in in Brazil and and, and in the region. So, in a in a way, everyone is hoping to get rid of Bolsonaro, but making sure that the alternative is not going to be too dangerous. And we know we have just about a minute and a half left. We know that early in uh, Bolsonaro's campaign that uh, the Trump uh, strategist Steve Bannon played a key role in it as an advisor to Bolsonaro. Has, do you have any idea as to has he been an ongoing advisor or did he, uh, did he come and go? Uh, I think it has been a kind of long-standing relationship, not just with with Bannon, but with other members of the Trump family and the Bolsonaro family they have met in the U.S. So there's a good chance that they are seeing what kind of plan can be can be constructed ahead of an of an election in which odds are they they are going to lose. And and here, uh, talking about Lula, I think Lula needs to have the people mobilized. And I think that's one of the lessons that both Lula, that Lula Castillo and Petro should take from Chavez and today's Chavez anniversary. Uh, you, you, only, you can only affect meaningful change if you have the people on your side and mobilized and ready to take on these, these uh, elites and, and the bourgeoisie, which are not going to be happy whenever anything is going to threaten their interests. Ricardo Vaz, as always, thank you so much for your time. We truly appreciate your work and your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Consortium News has a piece entitled, U.S. Should Not Fund Ukrainian Blacklist. The author of this piece, a military analyst and Consortium News contributor, was among those blacklisted by a Ukrainian government agency that appears to be funded by the United States. He has written a letter to his representatives in Congress. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He is a military analyst and Consortium News contributor and the author of this piece, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. So you wrote a letter to Senators Schumer and Gillibrand and Congressman Tonko, uh, and you write, by enacting public law 117-28, you appear to have abrogated your constitutional responsibilities insofar as you may have, in fact, made a law which both abridges the freedom of speech and a free press by enabling the government of Ukraine through the use of U.S. taxpayer dollars appropriated under public law 117-28 to publish a quote-unquote blacklist singling out U.S. citizens as Russian propagandists for exercising their constitutional rights pertaining to free speech and a free press. Scott, if you would first explain the blacklist and then your response to it. Well, the blacklist is a um, uh, something that was produced by a an office within the office of the uh, presidency of Ukraine, uh, uh, the Center for, I think, disinformation um, 
been been something. I I don't know. It's one of those uh, propagandist terms, but it was created um, in April of this year uh, or last year. I'm sorry uh, for the purpose of um, attacking. Um, you know, people who speak out against uh, Ukraine speak out against uh, the policies of the nation supporting Ukraine. And um, I think on, uh, in July, earlier in July, they uh, they published this list. Uh, and on it are it's it's a list that contains um, notable people from around the world and me. Um, and it also <laughs> contains a number of Americans. And uh, it, it lists uh, very briefly why they've been singled out. Um, it doesn't say what the you know ramifications of being on this list are. I mean, one would imagine, for instance, I, I shouldn't probably apply for a visa to Ukraine anytime soon. Um, uh, but the, the, you know, the, the danger is, um, the Ukrainian government has published, uh, kill lists in the past, uh, or blacklists that have turned into kill lists. Uh, one of the original blacklists put out by the Ukrainian government in 2015 uh, included uh, Ukrainian parliamentarians who uh, were in opposition to the policies of the Ukrainian government. Uh, these people were kidnapped and murdered. Um, on the current, uh, you know, one of the current blacklists uh, that has been converted to a kill list, we have um, uh, British journalists who have been singled out to be killed. Uh, for the crime of reporting um, this conflict from the Russian side. So, you know, we can, we, we can joke if we want about this blacklist, but the Ukrainian government is not, um, it's not a civilized government. It's a government that uh, has willingly incorporated into its ranks uh, brutal thugs uh, who possess the neo-Nazi ideology and have uh, shown a proclivity for rape and murder and mayhem and violence. Um, so I think anybody whose name is on this list um, uh, shouldn't take it lightly. This isn't just a, uh, a word game being played by, you know, propagandists. Um, you, you know, we have now been caught up in the ugly reality of this conflict, which is the Ukrainian government has singled us out um, for some nefarious purpose. Uh, right off the bat, just being on this blacklist, being called a Russian propagandist, um, there's a chilling effect here in the United States. I think anybody who was employed by RT or Sputnik understands this reality uh, that once you're singled out in this nature, it becomes harder to do business. And if your business is the press, this is a suppression of freedom of press. And if your business is speaking or writing, this is a suppression of freedom of speech. Now, the Ukrainian government can do whatever the hell it wants to do. You know, that's their right as a sovereign state. If they want to target Americans, so be it. Have fun. But what can't happen is that the United States Congress, which is prohibited by the Constitution, the First Amendment, from passing any law that infringes or abridges on freedom of speech or freedom of the press. Uh, the United States Congress cannot pass a law that provides money to pay the salaries of Ukrainian civil servants in this center so that they can in, uh, enact uh, actions which suppress free speech. This is the United States government using taxpayers' dollars to get foreign governments to do that which they're not permitted to do by law. And that in itself is, I believe, unconstitutional, illegal, and must cease and desist. 
Well, you know, you make a couple of good, strong points here. And and one of them, the first, I think, being, and I'll put the two of them together and get back to you, get, get, get it back to you. The first of it being, is there actual physical danger to be, um, uh, you know, to be concerned about here? Well, one thing we know, we've and we've covered that here and spoken with you uh, about it. There have been multiple stories of the issue of literal Nazis, literal people who identify with the Nazi ideology going to Ukraine and being trained and then returning to the U.S. and that there was a concern in U.S. In, in intelligence communities that they may come back here and they're, quote, radicalized. Well, if you're a member of the Nazi, whatever, you're all radicalized is a relative term. But those people could come back and say, oh, well, what do you, what do we get, what do you know? We got a list of Russian bots they could consider acting out in a violent manner. The other thing I think that you're saying is, is, is important is – as we pay tax dollars and our tax dollars are put towards something, uh, a particular country that is, in fact, not independent if the U.S. is paying the salary of the people who are taking action. The question is how much input, how much can um, the American people question and get information about, et cetera, for tax dollars that are going to another country when the U.S. is fully in charge of those two countries? Those two things, your thoughts, Scott Ritter? Well, I mean, right off the bat, we have to understand that uh, one of the most dangerous aspects of um, this, this current phase of ideological conflict is um, that it's being carried out uh, primarily by lone wolves. Meaning that there's not, you know, a meeting of the U.S. Nazi Party communicating with the Ukrainian Nazis and coming up with an agreed upon stance that we're going to target and murder American citizens on this list. I mean, I wish that was the case because that would produce, um, you know, actionable intelligence for law enforcement. Uh, it's easier actually to crack that kind of threat than the one which really exists, which is the, 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 the lone ideologue living in his or her mother's basement um, and, uh, you know, getting radicalized and deciding on their own that they're going to take action in furtherance of what appears to be a directive coming from their ideological masters who may not know that they're the masters of this individual, but that individual has decided to align himself uh, with them. We see this with ISIS, where people just say, I've decided I'm becoming an ISIS warrior. And therefore, I've decided that in the name of ISIS, I'm going to carry out the following actions. It's not like they received direction to do it. They're just doing it. And with these neo-Nazis, these, these, this hate-filled ideology, um, you know, this is, a real, this is a real risk. I mean, I'm not going to spend my entire life uh, looking over my shoulder. Uh, but uh, for anybody to minimize it and say, ah, you're, 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 you're not, um, you know, you're, 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 you're living in the shadows, man. Get out of that. Live. Hey, uh, why don't you try it? Why don't you try it? Uh, no, it's it's no. We're in, and we're in a bad situation in America because we are a nation that has been afflicted with um, a mental illness of violence. Uh, we've been you know radicalized by violence, and uh, we have people who have access to weapons. We have people who have access to the internet. They can become radicalized. They can take those weapons and they can take action, and they are. So that is a real danger. Uh, and then the other one is. You know, I'm not accusing the United States government of writing this list. I'm not. I mean, maybe they are because there is collusion <laughs> taking place between the CIA, the FBI, uh, and other U.S. agencies and the Ukrainian government. Nothing happens in isolation. And this center 
was created as an adjunct of ongoing information warfare being run by the CIA and the FBI. So there's every opportunity for the United States government to have played an active role in preparing this. I will say that if you're over in, uh, in, the, in Europe and you're uh, the CIA uh, station chief or a case officer assigned to information warfare in Ukraine and you didn't know about the creation of this list, quit. Go home. You're done. You're stupid. I don't need you. And, you know, <laughs> because that's incompetence in the extreme. There's no doubt in my mind the United States government was aware that this list was being prepared and was probably aware of the people being put on this list prior to it being published. Um, but that's not the greatest sin. The greatest sin is that there is not a civil servant in Ukraine today that's not being paid, um, by, uh, that's, that's, that's not being paid by the United States. So you, you take a look at the budget that was passed in May, uh, $8.7 billion with a capital B uh, set aside for these kind of emergency services funds, which include paying the salaries of Ukrainian civil servants. We pay every civil servant in Ukraine. Now, one of the metrics of the law that you, that you cited, Public Law 117-128, is that it requires within 90 days uh, for the uh, either the Secretary of State or the uh, head of the uh, United States uh, Agency for International Development to brief Congress on how this money is being used, including specific metrics, um, you know, what's being achieved. And this is why I wrote the letter, because that 90-day window, uh, th this law was passed, I believe, in, on, uh, on um, May 21st. That 90-day window is coming up in August, and there will be hearings uh, held by the Appropriations Committee. And at that time, I want my elected representatives to ensure that the head of USAID is asked straight up, are you paying the salaries of the people in a center who prepared a blacklist targeting Americans for exercising their freedom of speech? That's a question I demand be answered or asked, and there better be an answer. Uh, and the answer, if it's yes, then Congress needs to shut this whole thing down. It's done. You cannot violate the constitutional rights of American citizens by transferring um, the, the suppression of those rights to a foreign government that is facilitated by U.S. taxpayer dollars. That is just fundamentally un-American. And if my representatives aren't willing to take action, believe me, I am prepared to escalate this. I do believe that there's a number of uh, you know, uh, legal organizations who uh, claim to support uh, free speech. And I, I believe this is the kind of case that could be brought to the attention of the uh, Supreme Court. I believe Congress is violating its constitutional duties, and um, this may require the courts to uh, intervene and correct us. Quickly, we have about a minute and a half left. Talk about the hypocrisy that this demonstrates in, in that when you listen to President Biden and when you listen to Blinken and, and all these others, whether it be Trump or even you know, going back to Obama, they talk about democracy and they talk about the United States standing up for the individual's rights to be heard and all of that kind of stuff. But what we really see is we have become and we are engaged in the very activities that we claim to be fighting against. No, you're 100% correct. Uh, this is hypocrisy in the extreme. Uh, American democracy is built upon the notion of informed debate, dialogue, and discussion. And um, this, the, the, this administration and successive administrations have suppressed America's ability to do that by, A, uh, controlling the narrative through uh, the manner in which they control the mainstream media, and B, by 
uh, again, creating a chilling effect um, for those who dare speak out. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there is economic harm to speaking out, and that, that has a chilling effect. People aren't likely to say, hey, I disagree, if they know that they may be uh, unemployed uh, because of that. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Well, thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Caitlin Johnstone has a piece in Consortium News entitled The Most Dangerous PR War. Ukraine's celebrity-in-chief just took time off from his heavy schedule of appearances at major Western gatherings for a photo shoot with his wife in Vogue magazine. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I believe it was Sir Winston Churchill who famously said, there has never been a bad time in the midst of war when those thrust into positions of leadership shan't pause in the midst of shelling to pose for a timely photo shoot. Tis, tis, <laughs> tally-ho, tut, tut. Jim, if this wasn't Churchill, it was probably Bugs Bunny. This, <laughs> this, I'm glad you can laugh at that. This is, it's gotten that sick. I know it's risible, but you don't want to laugh. I mean, you can't can't not. But it's you know a little bit like the attacks, the wrist threats at the Met Gala, you know, to Boris in the middle of the uh, middle of the war. You know, where you're hunkered down in the bunker, you call in uh, Annie Leibovitz to take sexy pictures with you and your wife. Uh, it's it's bizarre. People can be this clueless and not understand how bad this looks. And it's even more bizarre that they get away with it, (laughs) (laughs) you know, to a lot of people. I mean, there is, you know, as Caitlin says, and as everybody's been saying, this is, they say, you know, Caitlin, this is the most egregious war propaganda, uh, information management, uh, not just information management, but emotional manipulation that we've ever seen in a war. Of course, I don't think that's true. I mean, World War Two, you know, I mean, the Huns and World War One and some nasty stuff going on there. But it is in our lifetime, probably the, the it's just unbelievable what they've done. And they've created heroes and, and, and villains. And it just is it impenetrable to a lot of people uh, to critique or to, you know, take a breath and see what's going on here. And you've got this guy uh, hunkered down uh, and they they pose with their emergency supplies, and she poses with a nice blue gown and in a, in a basement full of. I mean, what are we supposed to make of this? You know, this is stage stuff for 
you to feel good about these people and to feel like they're part of your celebrity life, you know, the, the, the bachelorette party or the family feud, celebrity family feud. And these are cool people. The, the wives and, of the know, Ukraine or the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the real housewife of Ukraine. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, and in the middle of it, you know, we're sending 50, a hundred billion dollars, and we get reports from people who were fighting for them, you know, foreigners who came to fight for the foreign legions about how the weapons are being stolen everywhere along the way and resold. And that they have to go out and they have to fight they have to buy weapons that the Americans sent to them, but were stolen. And, and, and my group, my platoon, my regiment of foreign fighters had to buy them from the people who stole them. And, you know, it's just uh, in the middle of it, you get this and you have the big rock concert. Don't forget the rock concert last week with the Rolling Stones and everybody, you know, uh, and uh, it's just crazy. So this is part of what it is, though. They've become part of celebrity culture. Here's the other thing. You know, last week she's in or a week or so ago, she's in Congress talking to Congress, asking them for weapons. So they so it's like somebody made a decision. Hey, I got an idea. I got an idea. Let's bring Zelensky's wife into this thing. Because, you know, let's face it, Jim. He didn't come up with this idea. This is a media production. The CIA, the U.S. State Department, they came up with these ideas. It was, hey, I got an idea, guys. Let's bring his wife in. We'll start off by we'll have her ask Congress. Then we'll go to the celebrity shoots. Next thing you know, she'll do the Washington tour as young Ukrainians get ripped apart by artillery barrages. Russians are out there. They're throwing missiles. People are getting blown up. This is a horrific war going on. Instead of sitting down saying, how can we use diplomacy to end this misery? They're doing... Hey, you know, they, that somebody is literally sitting around in Langley and or Foggy Bottom coming up with these ideas. And Madison Avenue. Madison Avenue. That's a horrific state of affairs, Jim. Well, before, and before you respond, Jim, uh, Caitlin Johnstone writes, call me crazy, but I'm beginning to suspect that there might be a concerted effort to manipulate the way we think about the war in Ukraine. In fact... I'd even go so far as to say it's the most aggressively perception managed war we've ever experienced. That's what they're, they're sitting around there right now. What do we do next? I got a great idea. Jim. And his wife ain't bad looking. So there we go. Put her Jim, out there. What do you think? No kidding. They weren't they weren't putting uh photo shoots with Ray's a garbage off. I mean, you know, uh this is this is uh, maybe they did actually. But uh yeah, it is perception management, and it is coming from, as you say, the PR machine of New York, Washington, L.A. That is, you know, this is a good idea. And you know what? It is a good idea for the coastal elites, for the people who read Vogue and who read Vanity Fair and who, you know, watch the Kardashians. And watch this and pay attention to celebrity culture. And those are the people who are the elites. They want to keep on board with this. And they like these people. Now, they, they're presenting an image to, to that audience of people that are 
you know, like them. This is just like your neighbors on the Upper West Side, you know, and uh, on the Upper East Side or, you know, in San Francisco. And so this, that's the point of it in a certain sense, you know, and uh, they don't really don't get the idea that, first of all, even a lot of people in the United States who are not in that in that elite group of people or strata of people see this as a little bit phony and uh, what does it have to do with me and why are we sending them $54 billion? And, and you know, the, 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 the absolute disconnect between this and the reality of what's going on and the, and the political reality of what's going on and the material military reality of what's going on is just doesn't make any difference. And they want to keep a certain group of influential elites on their side to keep the money flowing to this, to this war. And, uh, that's what they're doing. And at the end of the day, whatever day that might be, do you think they've overplayed their hand here? Uh, yeah, I think this this invites ridicule in, in too much. You know, everybody's going to play. Too many people see this as beyond the pale, as overstepping, as, you know, what the heck is going on here? So, yes, this is an overstep. I think net, net overstep. Uh, but... Uh, the question is really, when are they going to be beyond the pale and, and, and overstep in a way that they can't get back in terms of real sending resources, getting us endangered in this, in this country, having us admired in the war and fighting the Russians in, in, in World War III? And I don't think that's happened yet. Uh, so I think this is, this is a, a, a tactical error that doesn't yet have – doesn't indicate a strategic turn. There's a, a statement here in this Newsweek piece on the same subject I find interesting. Avi Yemeni, chief Australian correspondent of far-right political website Rebel News, expressed a sentiment, I respected Zelensky at the beginning of the war when we were flooded with photos of the Ukrainian president on the front line in tactical gear. Turned out the photos were faked and act like the man himself, now posing for Vogue, all to grift billions from Western taxpayers. And that's a far-right correspondent. Yeah. No, there was a Republican quoted, too, I think, about this. Look, there's propaganda, not just in every war, everywhere, but in a war there's propaganda, and propaganda isn't necessarily false. You know, you can put forward ideas and images that are there to persuade people to support you, that are true, <laughs> and, and and you're doing it for the purpose of getting support. And there's a way of covering, having an interview with the wife, having an interview with with, with the family or whatever. But you, but to put it in this fashionista Annie Leibovitz, this is the cool Vogue, literally Vogue. You know, let's Vogue, <laughs> <laughs> let's do the Madonna dance. Mm -hmm. and, you know, this is uh, you're just missing the missing the the off point here that you've gotten yourself into, and you're missing the off key. And uh, it's a it's a in in the information war, it's a tactical error, I think, and uh, not yet uh, uh, in in the for the Western for the Western audience for the Western audience from the ground up, it's still I think. Uh, Stand by Ukraine, and this isn't going to change that yet. Uh, it's it, 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 what's going to change that is the cost of it, and 
the length of it and the horror of it if it gets worse, as it gets worse for Western actual people, constituencies, not just media audiences, but, you know, people who have to live and breathe and stay warm. Jim, the other thing I think that's important in looking at this, looking the way it's set up, everything like that, and, and the whole thing around it, it shows, again, demonstrates something important to me, the talk about the information war. There is a pretext that the information war is the U.S. and its allies versus the information war from Russia, which I don't see much of an information war from Russia so far. I guess they argued that us having this discussion is it. But um, to me, it shows that the information war is really against the American people. To keep their, their minds, you know, thinking in a certain way, because clearly this is aimed at the American people. And it shows that the whole information war is a war against the American people to keep them from having the ability to discern this on their own. Caitlin Johnstone writes in her piece to that point, Garland, can you imagine if people were allowed to just think their own thoughts about their government's economic warfare against Russia, which is hurting them financially and pushing millions towards starvation with the full awareness and approval of the U.S. government? Yeah, look, the information war isn't being won by the United States in India or in Africa. You know, it's not being won in the Middle East even. You know, I mean, People outside the Western countries uh, dominated by the Western media, although Western media does have dumb strength in those other countries too, are not buying the information war line of the United States. But you're right. This is for, as I said, it's for the audience in the West, in the United States and Europe, to keep them in support of this uh, war against Russia that's been going on since the demise of the Soviet Union, and is now uh, reached a certain level, a very high level of aggression and military conflict in, in Ukraine, but it's, it's the same war. And they've been doing it for a long time. They've been doing it since uh, the Magnitsky Act. They've been doing it since the Scripples and the uh, poison gas and the Novichuk, and they're doing it since Maidan, and they're doing it here. And uh, this is now at a high level, but they need to keep the American public particularly, because they're losing the European public quickly, but the American public behind uh, the war effort, which is what it is. It's the war against Russia. And uh, it's going to take a little doing to do that, to keep it, to keep it up. But uh, it's where it, we are. It's where we are. Right now. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Haiti Liberté reports Ariel Henry has, quote-unquote, failed 
and works for, quote, international bosses, end quote, say critics over the prime minister's one year anniversary address. For further insight into this, we turn to our next guest. She's an associate professor of black studies and anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, a member of the Black Alliance for Peace and an editor of the Black Agenda Review segment of the Black Agenda Report. Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. So the paper continues on the one-year anniversary of his ascension as Haiti's prime minister. Ariel Henry said he is committed to bringing peace to the country, holding elections and combating corruption, inflation and gas shortages. But critics pounced on his statements, saying he is handling handing over management of the country's affairs to others. And numerous protest movements have drawn crowds railing against Haiti's continued decline in the past year. Your thoughts, Dr. Pierre? Well, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, Henri actually is did not fail. He's, he did exactly what he was put in place to do, <laughs> which is to, you know, pretend that Haiti is a sovereign state that has uh, that has control of its own um, political economic um, uh, uh, situation. In reality, Henri is a puppet that was put in place. He's unelected. Um, he was put in place by the core group and he's in there. He's there to manage whatever they want to do. And so he's playing the role perfectly. He's not doing anything. And people don't remember Henri was also part of what they call the U.S. Uh, uh, appointed unelected group back in 2004 during the coup d'etat. He was the uh, was part of a group of the Council of Sages uh, after the U.S. and the core group established their control over Haiti in, uh, in 2004. And then they put this group of old Haitian men as if, um, you know, they were they had a say. So he's perfect. He's been working with the, the, the foreign rule of Haiti since 2004. And so he's perfect for that. Uh, and let me let me add this. If I'm not mistaken, it came out that the la the assassination of the last Haitian prime minister, when that happened, that he apparently was on the, or it is at least alleged, that he was on the phone with the assassins on the night that the assassination was uh, committed, when they were in the area of the place where the assassination was committed, one would have to conclude that he knew something about the assassination or at least had some kind of a relationship with it. And I say that to say this. That being the case, then he has to know that those backing him don't have a problem with rubbing out the uh, the leader if the leader doesn't go in their direction, which makes it me believe that he would be inclined to follow suit by going in their direction so that he doesn't face the same fate. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I hate Henry Kissinger, but his quote here is to be what to be an enemy of the U.S. is bad, but to be a friend of the U.S. is deadly. And so we should we should all know that, you know, if we look at what's going on around the world, um, you know, former people, people who were formerly, you know, puppets of of, of the U.S. and the West have, have just, you know, um, been taken out when they when they no longer serve the purpose. And so he must know this. But pe everyone thinks that they're going to be the different ones. Right. And so because he's lasted a year. Um, and, and he's only there and he's only in power and he's, well, he's, he's not in power, but he's only there, um, because of the, the U S and the core group grants him that, uh, when they're tired of him, when he's no longer effective, they'll get rid of him. And we all know this and, and, and that's the reality. And what's going on in Haiti right now, it's, it's really sad because, you know, the Western media is just 
pounding on this gang violence, using the language of gangs and gang violence so that we can prepare ourselves when they send military over there. And I think that's what's happening. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's holding the space so that the U.S. can send Marines and take over Haiti, which, and I have to say, I don't know if you were going to ask me about the gangs. So I have to, I'm going to continue and oh, say that. Oh, no, please do, because th- yeah, we've, we've, we've got that on the list of things to cover. Go ahead. Right. Because the last, you know, I have want people to remember that the last three formal, you know, U.S. interventions in Haiti all dealt around international politics. And so, you know, the U.S., today's the anniversary of the first occupation of Haiti, July 28th, 1915. That was during World War One when the U.S. sent arms to control that area because they need Haiti as that space. So Haiti is not inconsequential. You know, 2004, the U.S. occupied Haiti during the Iraq War. Um, um, and, you know, and so and now that the U.S. is fo- trying to foment another war with China, they need the space, they need that area, and they need to be in the area. So I do think there's some there's a link between this increased you know attention to so-called gang violence that that the West is funding through their arms and so on, and and the, and and the call for um, for uh, some kind of intervention in Haiti. Henri said he wants to establish a credible electoral process that ensures participation to legitimize elected officials and reach a consensus. Where is Haiti in terms of its constitution and how is how is the government functioning? Is 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 there is is there in fact a government in place that functions or is it just a caretaker regime? that is controlled by the West. It's a caretaker regime that is controlled by the West. Mind you, you know, you know, under Moïse, a lot of people, you know, the Haitian state fell apart. We have very few, I think it's, uh, you can count on two hands the number of elected officials now in Haiti. Um, uh, Moïse never, you know, didn't hold elections for par- parliamentary elections. People's terms ended. And so, you know, Henri is really his term by ended. Decree. Moise's term ended, which is what <laughs> caused a lot of the consternation. Exactly, his term ended, and he was ruling by decree. And then he's assassinated, and we know the U.S. knows so much more, so much about this, and we know that Moise, I mean that Henri, is in, 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 is is very much implicated in that assassination. And so there, there are no. There are no elected officials in Haiti. You know, the handful of people. There hasn't been elections, local elections, um, national elections. And so there's no government in Haiti. And so when these other groups, the Haitian civil society groups like the Montana Accord, which is, you know, a bourgeois opposition, but they had a plan, you know, the, the U.S. managed to stop that. Right. And 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 they told Henri that Henri doesn't necessarily have to negotiate with them. And, and in his speech, you know, from yesterday where he says, you know, dialogue must not be opportunity to waste time. That's his quote, which tells you everything that we don't, we don't need dialogue as long as the core group, which, which are the real gangs of Haiti, the core group, um, which is the big gang of Haiti. Um, they're the ones controlling everything. So it is, it is a, it's a state that's there, um, for the U S and I have to say it's, it's, it's a success of 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 imperialism in Haiti in the sense that they were man they managed to completely destroy the state and and leave Haiti Haiti and Haitians with nothing. Here, you know, there's a, the typical um, Reuters article, Haiti gangs wage battles in downtown Port-au-Prince. But they end by saying gang violence has soared since the assassination last year of President Jovenel Moïse, creating a political vacuum that criminal groups have taken advantage of to ex- expand to control over territory. And then rights activists in May said a 
Protracted gang confrontation killed 150 people. Well, A, who are those rights activists? But B, they took Moisi out. And now they're like, yeah, there's gang violence since uh, Moisi was taken out. A, they had him in. B, they took him out. It certainly seems as though they want gang violence. And now they can talk about that and distract from the reality that they are refusing to allow Haitian uh, political and economic independence. Your thoughts? Oh, well, definitely. Like I said, the last time I was on the show is, is that, okay, so Haiti, as they always put in these stories, is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. So who is bringing in the guns? The guns are coming from the U.S. And so Haitian civil society is like, well, who's bringing all these machine guns and ammunition? These young kids don't have jobs. You know, they're, if you see the pictures, they're in flip-flops, you know, and, and torn up shorts. Where are they getting money for guns? There are more guns in Haiti than there's, you know, access to food. And so we have to think about who's bringing guns. But in, in the story is, is you're right, it is a distraction because what it does also is it's a race. It's a racist story. Right. Because, you know, calling it gang, calling it gang violence, then it seems like, you know, you're in the streets of like, you know, so-called, you know, some there's some ghetto there. And then there's like, you know, these black people you know, these, these Negroes basically, um, you know, shooting at each other and they completely re- remove the, 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 the discussion about the violence committed by the UN occupation where, you know, the UN occupation, sexual violence, the cholera, but also the political violence that is being, you know, um, upheld and maintained and supported by the core group and the West. And so it decontextualizes everything that's been going on in Haiti and brings it down to like, these blacks are killing each other and they're shooting each other as opposed to this 18-year-long occupation and coup d'etat that led to, you know, where we are today. And so it is, it is terrible. I hate the word, I hate the words that they use, gang violence in particular, because it does, it, it's, it racializes it in very particular ways, but then also hides the reality of, of the core group's, you know, misbehaviors, you know, bad behavior in Haiti. And the other thing is, if we're going to talk about violence, this, we are in the U.S. where how many mass shootings do we have per year? Um, per day, <laughs> you know, how many mass shootings, how many people has the police killed since January 1st? And so we could actually, you know, can you imagine these kind of headlines um, about the U.S., you know, but it's Haiti so they can get away with it. Cuba facing hybrid warfare. This is from Orinoco Tribune. Uh, and it's Cuba must learn to live, advance and develop under the rigors of the fourth generation warfare or hybrid warfare which the United States systematically imposes on it. This is the approach that emerges from observing the tireless efforts of the government, the Communist Party, and the Cuban institutional system in all spheres of economic, political, social, and cultural activities. I I sent that to you because there seem to be a lot of parallels when they talk about hybrid warfare. There seems to be a lot of parallels between what the United States has been engaged in in Cuba for the last, I guess, 60 years and what's going on in Haiti. Yes, definitely. Well, I mean, Haiti, we all know that, um, well, not we all, but most people should know that the 2004 um, uh, coup d'etat was led by three years, at least, of the National Endowment for Democracy color revolution, um, you know, so-called student protests that they were funding. They were funding all these groups, um, you know, so-called student groups to go um, and, pub- and, and, and protest. In fact, Claude Joseph, who was the prime minister when um, um, uh, Moise uh, was uh, 
was assassinated was actually funded by the national, he was a so-called student leader back in 2000, protesting against Aristide, um, funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. So yeah, this hybrid warfare is, is, is there. And sanctions against Cuba, I mean, people, I hope people know that, you know, I know you cover this. This is a 60-year blockade, which basically you know, set of policies that control how Cubans get anything they need to survive. And they're punishing them because they got rid of a, the dictator Batista and, and had communism on this country, right? So, you know, they're, they're, they control all financial transactions. So we know the economic blockades, you know, um, cash remittances are, are blocked, um, fines on foreign banks that engage in uh, transactions in Cuba, harassment of shipping companies that transport oil from Venezuela to Cuba, and so, you know, where and also where American companies can sue foreign companies operating in Cuba, you have that. And then you have remember when they're saying like the the people in the embassy in Cuba, the Americans were uh, the sound, mm-hmm. you know, that was yes. causing them the crickets. <laughs> so exactly, Havana syndrome. Have, exactly, exactly. And then you have then you have the social media where they can you know create fake, um, you know, fake accounts and make it seem like everything is going crazy in Cuba. So, and that's the hybrid warfare we see everywhere. I mean, we see the propaganda uh, against Russia with this special military operation. And so we know that that's exactly how the U.S. works. And so, you know, it they practice all of that stuff in Haiti, mm-hmm. in Libya, in Cuba long before, you know, what's happening in uh, 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 against Russia now. And so we have to really think about this hybrid. This is the new kind of way that the U.S. is using technology in addition to economic and political warfare. And, and you know, and, and Cuba will, will, will fight against it as, as they have in the past 16 years, 60 years. As we get out, you mentioned the National Endowment for Democracy. And I believe uh, a woman who's running to be the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, sits on the board of directors for the National Endowment for Democracy. Am I correct? That is correct. Okay. And, you know, living in L.A., let me just tell you how disappointing Karen Bass is, who was part of the Vincerama's brigade in Cuba when she was younger. <laughs> we got we got 15 she, seconds. Yeah. Now she has a pro cop, you know, uh, thing. And what the problem was the national down with Karen Bass is that you have a lot of black people in, in, in black faces in these, you know, mm-hmm. perpetuating U.S. imperialism. And that's the problem. Right. So if we look around, we have all these black people doing it and it's it's a shame. And they're the black misleaders that Glenn Ford would call out. Dr. Jamima Pierre, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thanks so much for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT Report's horror chart suggests Germany on brink of huge energy crisis. Consumer prices for electricity are detached from reality, according to the editor of Die Welt. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He is an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, which is headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Dr. David Walalu is as always, sir, welcome back. Pleasure to be with you. 
Germany is headed for a, quote, huge energy crisis, end quote, a senior editor at one of the country's most influential papers, Die Welt, warned yesterday. Not only are gas prices near record highs, but electricity prices in particular are signaling stress. Your thoughts on uh, where this is headed? More in, in, in my in my real interest here is really the the geopolitics behind all all of this. Well, that that is an interesting uh, aspect, uh, Walmart. So, you, I mean, where to start with all this? Because the picture is not as clear as it can be. I had a chance to check out, for example, where the inflation rates are in Europe as a whole. So you go from, for example, Estonia, 22 percent, all the way down to, let's say, for example, even France. France is about 7 percent. So Germany ranks about 9 percent. And this is based on what they are releasing, the information or the stats they are releasing. Will I believe it? No, that's just me. Uh, I always look at the other, the hidden side of, of, of where things are. And usually what this suggests to me now with the problems of the electricity uh, in Germany, uh, it, it's that the government now is going to be thinking about the alternative. And what am I talking about here? I'm talking about a nuclear power plant because Germany, as a matter of fact, the economic ministry have considered now can extending the use of the its three nuclear power plants. Remember a couple of months ago, they shut down a few power plants and the whole world where I was wondering, it's like, what the heck with the Germans, what's going wrong with them? So because at that time, uh, the government had to sort of uh, acquiesce to the uh, voices on the right in German politics. Well, now they are realizing, no, 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 we can't do that because we don't want what's lying ahead, what's coming. I'm sure you've heard about the demonstrations now uh, starting in, in, in the UK. I'm sure you heard, your listeners, that is, they've heard about the collapse of the Italian government. Even though this that is political, it is not. It's tied to the energy crisis. So all this is an indication for now. My guess is that Europeans is going to be now moving towards the nuclear energy uh, proliferation, shall we say. When you have, for example, and I did just checked yesterday, and I did find this information uh, through some of my own contacts, you know, that Finland, for example, Finland now is starting up its first nuclear reactor in over 40 years. Mm. Yeah, UK has announced now plans to increase the capacity from seven, and, and, and your listeners need to put those numbers in perspective. So the UK is increasing its capacity from seven gigawatts to about 24 gigawatt, gigawatt uh, rather, by 2050. So you add to that France, which is France usually, uh, and I have family lives in France, so I'm a real familiar with how France uh, energy works because they get about 70% of their or electricity from the nuclear power plant. And now even France, is planning on building six additional new uh, nuclear power plants by 2050. And Germany, as we said, and Netherlands is also adding to the equation by sort of planning now to build two nuclear reactors in the coming years. So it tells me where things are headed. So if Germany is going into that direction, I am not surprised. What I am surprised at is how 
sort of uh, short-sighted the leaders were when they took those decisions, not realizing how much geopolitical decisions end up impacting economic outcomes. Now, let me ask you this, Dr. Walalu. There's a term in here that I see, I wouldn't say hidden, but it's not at the top of the, um, it's not at the, exactly at the top of the, the, the article. I'm not saying there's any intent there. I'm just saying it's in, kind of buried mm-hmm. in the article that I think is very important, where the, mm-hmm. the guy who's, uh, the, the, who's the, um, the senior editor at, at, at uh, D. Velt, I don't know if that's Deutsche Welle, but whatever, he says, uh-huh. talks about the increase, and it says it would be socially explosive. I read an article a while back where one of the top people in the German government said they feared violent protests, right? And I keep seeing these terms that indicate that they know what I suspect and probably you too, and that is their issue, if this continues, this is the, you know, people would say, well, they'll, I've heard people say, do you think there'll be runaway and rampant um, uh, inflation, that there'll be hyperinflation? These types of energy price increases amount to the same thing as hyperinflation for your um, economy. And what they're saying is, that you keep hearing this underneath is, the people are going to lose their minds and tear this country apart. And I believe that their big problem, if they got, Germany gets cold. And if they have no electricity, pipes are bursting, people are, entire regions of the country where people are literally freezing, you're looking at literally people going to the streets and and tearing the country limb from limb. Uh, Do you think that I am, you know, over stating the, the, the possibility of disaster and catastrophe, social catastrophe. No, you're not, Garland, because that's the reality. The, uh, those uh, statements emanating from governments today in Brussels or Berlin or Paris or Washington, they are not truly disclosing the truth. And this is the truth of where Europe is headed. We are no different. <laughs> We're just slightly different in a way that we are not hit as hard as the Europeans. But mind you, all this is tied also to what just happened between Russia and China when they declare now the emergence of a new currency. We all know what it means because our uh, dollar, the strength of the mighty dollar, it's backed by that, basically. That's what it is. Europeans is going to feel this as hard as as they could And you add the energy crisis to that because you got people now, and I talk to my family overseas, you know, they kind of like worried where this is headed because they're starting to realize when I do my monthly budget, I am, I I have, I don't have enough to pay just to maintain electricity and food, for example, which is are your basic elements that every one of us needs, food, energy, and water. You know, and this is where governments in Europe are like trying to manipulate into the wording. This part of what psyops are all about. Yes, we use the psyops in a military, uh, tactical aspect, but also governments know how to use this kind of terminology. But so your statement is right on the mark, and I won't be surprised that we're starting already to see the trends because what's going on right now in England, in the UK is an indication for what's coming down the road. And to follow along that same line, uh, Sputnik reports, as well as other outlets, Austria's intelligence chief 
warns country might face riots over energy crisis in the future, uh, saying that riots might erupt in the country owing to the probable energy crisis in the coming days. As of now, we do not see any riots on the street, but I find this interesting. But the hatred on the Internet has clearly increased. Every crisis means that despair for some can first turn into verbal actions and then even into violence. This is of their own creation. That, that's the thing that just boggles my mind is it's not as though the answer to this problem can't be found and is, in fact, right there in front of you. Uh, you know, as the adage is, when you go to the doctor and you say, every time I hit my head with this hammer, it hurts. And the doctor says, well, stop hitting your head with the hammer. I mean, it's not that hard to figure out, David. <laughs> Yeah, 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 absolutely correct. What I found very interesting about the statement is that uh, look the source where it came from. It came from the uh, the intelligence chief, not the finance minister or the economy minister, which tells me right there. The, the, you know, most governments we all know this, this is not a secret. They are monitoring what people are saying or are discussing, and in Austria, this is the conversation that is going. Uh, online per se as to where things are headed and yes there will be a possibility for a social eruption there because people will only take so much you know for us here in the u.s you know we're looking at the oil prices dropping by five cents ten cents what that's going to do to the average joe or average jane and then it's no different it's just as i said earlier for us it's slightly different because we are a rich nation and so forth, but that richness or whatever, it's backed by nothing but debt. And that's where I see the, the concern and the seriousness of this moving forward, because the collapse, for example, the collapse of Italy, you know, it's an indication for what lies ahead. And now you have the ACB, the European Central Bank, jacking up the interest rate. Where do people will have to turn to? You're only left with one is to break down that government or replace it with others and go from there. RT reports Brits receive energy price warning the end of deliveries of Russian gas to European customers could have knock-on impacts on prices in the UK, the national grid says. And a lot of people may not want to know, a comment on what's happening in Britain, but what's going on with the, um, with the uh, various uh, uh, protests and how, how bad is it getting? Well, they are getting bad. It's just the government will have to control what, what's been sort of uh, uh, propagated or, or published or disclosed. You know. Do we hear much about, for example, here for us in the United States? And as I said again, I have family in Europe, so I talk. Do we hear about what's going on in the Netherlands right now? With all the fires that's taking across the highways, and we don't even hear much about it because the farmers are being hit hard with this going on sanctions on fertilizers and so forth. And this is why you start to realize, the U.S. is realizing, maybe it is time to reach out to the Russians. This is why Tony Blinken wants to talk with Lavrov. Usually they will say it's about prisoner swaps, but it's not about that. We know what it's about. It's because not only the elections coming up, midterm elections here in the U.S., but also about the big picture, because the U.S. is losing the support of its allies in Europe because they are feeling 
the economic hit that is now impacting them and people are starting to talk about maybe we need to take matters into our hand and change the outcome. But I just can't see Tony Blinken changing his approach or his tactic and coming to Secretary Lavrov in a out of a position of, of respect and diplomacy. I, I just see Blinken treating Lavrov like he treated the Chinese in Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, I will have to say, Wilmer, he won't be able to. I mean, I know Tony Blinken. I met him personally, wonderful guy, but Lavrov is a seasoned diplomat. Mm-hmm. The guy's been around for so long. And there is no way that Lavrov will allow Tony Blinken to even down talk Lavrov. He's not going to allow that. And, 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 and Secretary Blinken understands whom he will be dealing with. You know? and, and, and straightforward from Lavrov is going to be straightforward. And this is why there was no response from the Russians thus far. You know, is the U.S. initiating this? And the Russians were like, yeah, whatever. And this reason for why is because they are realizing the sanctions that the West imposed on Russia are backfiring on the West, not Russia. And especially now with the decision that's been made about the creation of the new currency, not only between Russia and China, but also among BRICS countries and countries in the global south. We all see where this is headed. And that's why Russia is in a position of, like, whatever. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Dr. David Walalu, as always, we greatly appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. My pleasure. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.